Welcome to Pensive Series. Chris Camillo is a pioneer in applying social data analysis to investing, and he's also the co-founder of TickerTax, which is a crowdsource association taxonomy that connects trending social content to investable companies. I first heard about Camillo on CNBC where he talked about how he turned $20,000 into $2 million. By now, he has grown this figure to $8 million. And besides investing in public markets, he also invests in startups as an angel investor. His latest venture was created to evolve financial news monitoring to include social monitor attacks that serve to parse the world's data streams without bias. If you want to know more about his investment philosophy and are curious about fintech startups in general, this episode is for you. Start with a simple question. Where did you grow up? I grew up on Long Island. Uh, I had an un- what I thought at the time was an unfortunate uh, forced move to Texas at the age of 14. I had a couple months left in eighth grade, and I was relocated at the end of this, that school year. Uh, moved to Texas, didn't have a whole lot of friends my first couple of years, so I had a lot of time on my hands, which looking back played a big, a big role in my life. Um, it's funny because I, I, I became somewhat obsessed with arbitraging, just the, the, just the sense of, of arbitrage opportunities in life at an early age, I think because I had so much time. I'd wake up on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday mornings at 5 a.m., and I'd visit estate sales and garage sales in my local neighborhood. Uh, I noticed that most estate sales were run by women, older women, who were really good at pricing antiques uh, and certain types of collectibles, but not so great at pricing male-oriented items, baseball cards, train sets, old men's watches. And so I would buy those items and I would sell them. This is pre-eBay, of course, but I would sell them to dealers around the country, and, and, and that's how I kind of got started with this whole mindset of arbitraging markets, right? It started with estate and garage sales. And is there any other story in your childhood where it's like, uh, this is something that you thought you would go into investing well, because of that story? I, I was never particularly interested in investing until one morning I actually was going out to visit estate sales, and I would start every morning with a, a bottle of uh, iced tea, Snapple iced tea, lemon-flavored iced tea, at, that I would buy at the local 7-Eleven. And one morning I went to buy this iced tea, and they didn't have any left. And I was kind of surprised uh, that what used to be two full refrigerator doors, and this is probably going back to 1989, I don't know, late 80s, uh, what used to be two full refrigerator doors at 7-Eleven of Snapple had turned into half of one refrigerator door. And the clerk said, for now on, this is how you know, we're going to run our inventory because we have new competitors in the market. Coke and Pepsi's making their version of iced tea. Went home and talked to my older brother who was in the securities industry, and I asked him, is there a way for me to make money off this? And, and he taught me how to short uh, Snapple with options. And I was 14 years old, but I gave him $300. I said, well, let's do that. Uh, they, happened to be coming, they happened to have had earnings the following week. And sure enough, uh, for the first time in the, history of com- in the history of the company, they had missed earnings because wholesalers were actually pushing inventory back uh, on Snapple and reducing the amount of inventory they were willing to take on because retailers like 7-Eleven were taking on less shelf space of Snapple. So the stock 
was up enough for me to triple my investment in about a week and a half, so that $300 turned into 1000 And that was a really game-changing moment for me because I realized I'm 14. I know nothing about the stock market. How could I have seen something walking into a 7-Eleven that could have that big of an impact on a hot, publicly traded company that all these Wall Street analysts had missed? And that really opened my eyes to think, hey, I cannot just arbitrage garage sales. I might be able to arbitrage the stock market. And, of course, that was the beginning of a very long journey that I'm still on today. Can you tell us more about social arbitrage and what it means for you? Yeah, so, I mean, the the best way for me to define what social arbitrage is in, in terms of investing is arbitraging information as it crosses over from the non-financial sphere to the financial sphere. Uh, that's it. So, so I initiate investments when I come across what I believe to be meaningful information uh, that would have an impact on a publicly traded company's earnings or perception that for any number of reasons, uh, the investing market in Wall Street, the investing public, has not yet come to terms with. They, they haven't recognize this information as fact. So that's when I initiate an investment. I exit the investment when the information I'm trading starts to get disseminated in the public markets. And that's it. That, that is all I do. That's my entire investment methodology hinges upon the discovery of information and arbitraging that information as it crosses over into the financial sphere. Um, do you have a particular story that encapsulate, encapsulate that sort of that sort of trade? I know you talk well, about uh, Hunger Games. Maybe you can tell that story. Yeah, I mean the Hunger Games is a good one. So, for about nine years, and, and so my investing track record, it's you know I, I started with about twenty thousand uh, dollars when I started this whole exploratory investment arbitrage career of mine about nine years ago, eight nine years ago. So that twenty thousand uh, dollars. I've made about 24 major trades over the past eight and a half years, and it's now grown to $8 million. So I've turned 20000 to $8 million in about a little over eight years. One of the, one of the trades was Lionsgate. Uh, they were a small publicly traded film studio uh, that had a movie called The Hunger Games. And The Hunger Games was a book before it was a film, as we all know. Uh, actually, one of my employees at the time uh, told me about the book, and she said, Chris, I read your book. She had read an advanced copy of my book. She said, I understand what you do, and I think I might have an investment for you. There's this book that me and all my girlfriends, she was 21, 22 years old, were obsessed with it. And I, I heard it's getting made into a movie. It's called Hunger Games. I think it will be the biggest movie ever made. I think it will be bigger than Harry Potter. I did a bit of research, and I said, nah, I don't, there's no way. I've never heard of this book. And I didn't invest until a few months later I was tracking kind of social acceleration on Twitter, and I noticed that there was a tremendous amount of interest in this Hunger Games. And I ended up making an investment before anyone on Wall Street really was paying much attention to the film franchise. And of course, Hunger Games went on to become one of the top grossing movies of all time, uh, specifically for Lionsgate. The stock, I think, tripled uh, over the following two years. And it was a big investment of mine. Uh, But more recently, a big investment of mine was Columbia Sportswear. Uh, They make a brand of boots called Sorel. You're probably familiar with it. Uh, Sorel boots or winter boots that have been around for 25, 30 years have never been trendy, right? Well, a couple of years ago, a few celebrities wore Sorels at Sundance, and they were photographed and ended up in a few of the popular weekly tabloids. 
happened to also be a cold winter. And all of a sudden, overnight, this brand that had never been trendy became one of the hottest brands in the world. And within about three and a half weeks, they were sold out in every store, online and offline. Well, the sellout was so deep that you had women walking into Nordstrom's on a weekly basis asking, when are the new Sorrells getting in? When are they getting in? I'm going to have a ski trip. I need my Sorrells. When those store managers went to place their orders with their buyers for the following year, they said, let's, let's not run out of Sorrells next year in November, please. So the, the order size went up significantly. Columbia Sportswear came out with earnings a few months later. Earnings were up dramatically because of an increase in guidance for the following year, because of pre-orders for Sorrells for the following season. Uh, that, was, uh, that was an investment of mine that was fairly significant that doubled in the course of about two and a half months. And Wall Street was completely oblivious to it. Why? Sorrell was a brand that hadn't done anything in decades. There was no reason for analysts to really be paying attention to Sorrell as a brand for Columbia Sportswear. It was really a, a kind of a static um, or stagnant revenue line for the company. It was off their radar, but my ability to understand and read social acceleration for the brand, which is what I do now, allowed me to, to have that ideation an ideation that was totally off radar for Wall Street. And that's what I do. I don't make a lot of investments, two or three a year. So um, how, how do you know that Wall Street hasn't picked up on any of that information that you trade on? Yeah, so, you know, first you have, to, you have to come up with something that you think will move the needle for a publicly traded company, something that you see over the course of your everyday life, something that you notice in your network, whether it's a new software that's gaining traction, whether it's a government policy, that you think will have a major impact on one or more publicly traded companies, like when Obama said years ago that he was going to subsidize the digitization of medical records with $50 billion of government money. The second you hear something like that, well, what companies would benefit? Cerner, right? And that was one of my big investments, Cerner. Then you have to ask yourself, okay, well, to what extent has this information already been ingested by the investing markets? Um, and that's when you start doing more conventional research. Now let me look at what other people look at. Let me look at analyst reports. Uh, let's look at published news, published blogs. Let's look at financial forums. Are the, investing, are the investors full of security? Are they already knowledgeable to this information that I think is going to move the needle? And I have a process for understanding this that I described in Laughing at Wall Street. But if, if at the end of that process you come up with the conclusion that that information has not been fully disseminated, that uh, has it has not been fully recognized, then an arbitra arbitrage opportunity exists. So it, it's actually fairly simple. Does the information move the needle? And has the information been disseminated? Of course, there's other things to pay attention to. Are there other things happening with this underlying security that are more meaningful than the information I'm trading? So if you're trading on something that will move the needle, but there's something else happening with the company that could come to light within that same time period, your trade window, that could trump the information you're trading, then that's something you have to take into account. But when that doesn't exist, you have an opportunity to arbitrage. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us why you started ticker tags? Well, gosh, ticker tags, you know, I've been doing this manually for almost a decade now. And again, I, I talk about going back to age 13, 14. I was doing this as a teenager, but kind of like when you, you know, when you play a lot of sports, when you're, if you get really obsessed with a sport like tennis, 
and you play it every day when you're a kid, you get burnt out. I got burnt out on investing. So I actually had an internship and got licensed at Fidelity Investments when I was like 17 or 18, my first year of college. And my entire life was investing. Um, I got burnt out and I just quit, and which is awesome because I actually got to live life for a while. I had a normal college experience and my, my first couple years out of college, I, I, I got to live a pretty normal life. It wasn't until I started to gain an interest in making money um, uh, that often you can't make as, as much as you would like from, from your conventional job post-college that, that I picked up that interest again. So I've been doing this manually for almost a decade now. I read 15,000 tweets a night. I've been reading about 15,000 tweets a night for three years. I have what someone consider you know, mad scientist spreadsheets with, with essentially counting um, and tracking the number of social mentions for things that I, find, that I feel are meaningful to the stock I'm investing in. When I, we sold our last company about four years ago, it was called eCarList. Uh, it, it was a pretty large exit for me and my, and my partners. I had an opportunity to do something that was that I was more passionate, and I, I, I spoke to one of my co-founders and I said, "Hey, this is an opportunity for me to digitize what I've been doing manually for a decade." So I go around and I look for what people are wearing, what people are saying. I read tabloids. I try to immerse myself in just pop culture, because this is the one area of opportunity where Wall Street is not focused. Right? Most most investment professionals are financially oriented, right? They're very good at doing one thing. So I don't try to compete with them with fundamental analysis or technical analysis. I try to arbitrage real information, information that's off radar. But I only see what I see, right? I only can leverage my personal network. Um, I could read my own Facebook page all day long on my own Twitter account. Um, but I've always felt that I've missed a lot more investment opportunities than I've seen as successful as I've been. What if we can read all the world's conversations, which we can theoretically now with Twitter and other open social networks? What if we can figure out how to data mine in real time all of the world's conversations? And what if we can bridge and filter those conversations to extract things that have potential to be meaningful to one or more publicly traded companies. Is that possible? That was the question I asked myself. Is it possible? And if it is possible, we have to do this. Like yesterday, we have to figure it out. So we start off on this venture, and the way that we figured out how we would, how we would address this problem is we need to, to create a taxonomy. We call it an association taxonomy. So, so we're trying to build out the first association taxonomy for the investment industry. So what does that mean? <clears throat> what we're building out are libraries of tags for every publicly listed security. So you have, I don't know, maybe close to 20,000 publicly listed securities. <clears throat> so a tag is a driver of business for that security, right? So a tag could be the name of a product that a company sells, a brand, an executive that works at the company, a celebrity that endorses their brand. It could be the name of a trend or a technology or an idea or a movement, a cultural movement. It could be the name of a place or an event. It could be the name of a factory where they make their products. Anything that has potential to be meaningful to a publicly traded company in any way would be a tag. 
So how do we data mine every tag for every publicly traded company? If we can do that, then we could start to overlay social streams like Twitter um, and Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest, right? And we could overlay all the world's blogs and all the world's social forums. And we could start to count every time someone mentions every one of those tags. And then we could analyze the acceleration and the deceleration of those conversations and actually compare them to other tags. And this would be, I think, the biggest breakthrough in the history of Wall Street conventional you know, research and analysis. Whereas if we think about how, how information floats into the investment industry, it's all at the ticker level, right? So for a century, we've, we've ingested information in the financial markets at the ticker level. So what does that mean? It means a human has to find something that they feel is important to this publicly traded company. They have to build that connection in their head, and they have to curate it into either an analyst report or a story that gets published in the press or maybe a blog, and then we consume it as investors and analysts and, and, and fund managers. That is really biased, it's inefficient, and we can do better than that. So if we can pre-associate everything that's meaningful to every, every publicly traded company, then when those things start to accelerate, in real time, we can bring them to light to investors. Does that, does that kind of make sense? So if a product tries to start to get more popular or less popular, we can bring it to light. When Cuba opened up as a country a few months ago, which is, which is really mind-numbingly interesting, well, does that have any impact on any publicly traded company? Well, if we have the tag Cuba, what publicly traded companies is Cuba meaningful to? So there's a company, there's a, a Brazilian airliner, their ticker is CPA, and we had Cuba in the tag library for CPA. Well, when Cuba, two hours after this news came out, two hours after our system saw that Cuba was accelerating on Twitter because it was announced that they were going to open up as a country, this stock started to move. I think they were up 20% on the day because the public's perception is they would benefit from more travel in and out of Cuba. Well, our system was able to recognize that in real time because we had pre-associated Cuba with that publicly traded company. Now, later that night, it was so interesting because I was watching CNBC, and they had a story of what publicly traded companies would benefit or be harmed by, by this whole change with Cuba. And they talked about this company. I was like, well, we, we were able to recognize that in real time. Within seconds, our system alerted off to that. So I think we're building something with ticker tags that, again, I think could completely revolutionize the way people think about information discovery, ideation, and researching in their, their investments. Okay. And personally, how do you curate what you, what you consume in terms of media? Well, um, I still somewhat do it manually because our platform is not released yet, but when it is, I will be doing it exclusively through ticker tags. So the concept with ticker tags is it's an open public taxonomy. It's crowdsourced. So anyone can contribute to it. So we might monitor 700 things for Netflix. Kevin Spacey's one of those things, right? If Kevin Spacey gets into a bus accident, if you own Netflix as a stock, and Kevin Spacey gets into a bus accident, do you want to wait 20 minutes for the financial press to break that story and correlate it to, to Netflix? 
and say this is bad for Netflix, obviously with Kevin Spacey being the lead actor of House of Cards? Or do you want to know within 30 seconds? You want to know within 30 seconds. So we track him. We track things like Frozen for Disney. But you might say, hey, it's great that you track Frozen. Maybe you should track Frozen sequel, even though it's not out yet. Um, I track you know, Kate Spade handbag, so I'm a big investor in Kate Spade. And I like to track that against Michael Kors handbag, because it's like the bag wars, right? Which one is accelerating with consumers? Well, you might say, I like that, but what if we track Kate Spade handbag in association with Kate or addicted, or loved, or sold out? and compare that to Michael Kors handbag and love and sold out and obsessed and addicted. That is a meaningful social indicator for how women are perceiving this brand in the marketplace. If one starts to trend down while the other's trending up, that's meaningful. So you could add private proprietary tags on top of our public taxonomy because those associations would be too intricate to become part of the public taxonomy. So we're trying to build out a public-private taxonomy that will kind of become part of the investment industry, part of the fabric of the way we research things. And for me, my life now is coming up with really interesting private tags that I don't think other people have the foresight to come up with. That will be part of my private taxonomy. Now, the big institutions hopefully will subscribe and they'll come up with their own private tags. And you guys, as individual investors, can come up with your own private proprietary tags. And you'll be able to monitor those tags in real time across the entire social web. And I think that's the future for how we determine if things that are drivers to an underlying business are doing better or worse than the market currently is expecting them to do. So um, for people just starting out, what would you tell them how they could build a track record? Well, OK, so you know there are a lot of ways to go about investing. Um, I think one of the most important things is to do something that, you know, find out what you can bring to your investing methodology that is unique or special. What unique insight do you have on the market um, where you're not trying to compete with 10,000 other really intelligent people trying to do something a little bit better? Um, I know I can't compete uh, with the greatest fundamental analyst out there. I can't compete with Warren Buffett on that. It's just not going to happen. There are technical traders. I don't really even believe in technical trading, but I know I can't compete there. But I can do this better. I, I, I can do this. Figure out what you can bring to your investment analysis that, that's special or unique. If you have a certain insight into a certain niche category, or if you want to become a specialist in a certain industry vertical that you think is under-researched, um, the, at least in the way that you want to go about researching it, figure that out and go in full force, right? Put all your momentum behind that. Historically, most of my trades have been female and youth-oriented. Why? Because I think Wall Street tends to be more male-oriented, and they tend to be slow to pick up on these female and youth trends. So it's not on purpose. Just most of the opportunities have been female and youth. Remember, when I was arbitraging garage sales as a kid, most of the products I would buy were male-oriented because the people pricing the products were female and they didn't understand how to properly price these male-oriented products. Now it's the reverse. So I think there's an opportunity. I think we're engaging on, on an entirely new seat. There's a sea change in how investment analysis is done. 
And I think we have about a decade to maybe even two decades before this gets arbitraged out. So that's a huge opportunity. So think about it. When we release ticker tags, there will be a, a quarter of a million to half a million new data points, meaning we're tracking every product in the world, every trend in the world, every idea, every, every movement. It, it will take Wall Street a long time to figure out how to interpret that social data efficiently. And believe me, they have no more advantage than an ordinary person when it comes to interpreting social data. No longer does the Wall Street analysts have a huge advantage because of their financial kind of education, right, and their experience. So I think almost the best person to interpret this type of data is, would be a private investigator, right? Because that's really what it's about. It's about interpreting social data. Does it really move the needle? Is it really happening? Like, like I said, I, I still, I read 15,000 tweets a night. How, how do you do that? Like, it takes about an hour and a half, and I, I scan them for the most part. And they're not, it's not random. So, like, if I'm investing right now in Kate Spade, I will read every Kate Spade tweet every day. I'll scan them. So you, you search by keywords? By keyword. And it's not every Kate Spade, but I'll search Kate Spade handbag in association with the word love, obsessed. So, yeah, tags. It's, it's difficult to do now. It will be very easy to do with ticker tags, right? Because you could easily chart them and read them. But, listen, and you can't just trade off of data. You have to really understand what's behind the data. And the only way you could really understand sentiment when it comes to tweets especially is to read them, read a lot of them. Believe me, you read, you know, one of my big investments this last, last year was so dumb, uh, but there's a small mobile gaming company called Glue Mobile, and they made a game called Kim Kardashian Hollywood. And all the big game reviewers said this game is going to be terrible. It will never gain any traction in the marketplace, the four big game reviewers. The company itself came out two months before the game was released and said, listen, we think we'll have a big year next year, but this year we have no hit games, no hit games on the slate. They come out with this game, Kim Kardashian Hollywood, and the acceleration of social chatter was unlike anything I'd ever seen on Twitter. Tens of thousands of girls saying, I can't stop playing this. I'm, I spent $13 today buying upgrades on the game. It took four days, four or five days, for it to become the number one top downloaded iOS app in the world. It doubled the revenue that year for Glue Mobile. So I had a major, and, and the stock doubled in about four weeks. So the stock literally, the market cap doubled in four weeks. I didn't pay any attention to Wall Street or the company that should have known this was gonna be a hit game. I just paid attention to the conversations. I read every single tweet, every Instagram message by every 12, 13, 14, 15 year old girl in this game to where I had such a high level of conviction that the world was wrong about what they thought about this game and that the, the kids actually were going to make this a big game, that I was willing to pull the trigger on a major high-risk investment. Is there anything specific that needs to happen in your analysis for you to make the investment, to have the conviction that... Yeah, so, listen, I, I talk, in Laughing at Wall Street, I talk about my investing methodology. I, I correlate to, to being a scientist. So you have to have a hypothesis, right? So first you develop your hypothesis, okay? This game is going to be one of the biggest iOS apps of the year, and that will move the needle for Glue Mobile. Then you have to test the hypothesis. Is, it, is that true or is that false? And if you approach it, if you approach it in that way, um, and you look 
for every possible way that you could be wrong. Like if you think there's a store that has a great line of, of handbags and better than any other season and, and they're going to drive a lot more revenue than, the, than, than the, the investment market thinks they're going to drive because the store is crowded, right? That's a hypothesis. But is your hypothesis wrong? Is it because the store just had a sale? Is it because the mall was particularly crowded that day? Is it because there was a celebrity in that one store, right? Is it really happening on a national level? So you have to treat this as if you were a scientist embarking on this major right, hypothesis. And at the end of it, if you come to the conclusion that your hypothesis is correct, you can't be thrown off by the fact that no one else sees what you see. That is the hardest thing to overcome. So even with all of this investment success I've had, and I've been doing this for such a long time, I still doubt myself every single time I pull the trigger on one of these big investments. I still can't believe that I'm seeing something that is this impactful that no other Wall Street analyst has seen. Like Kate Spade, I love this story because Anna Kendrick is an, does, do you, Anna Kendrick, have you heard of her? She's, a, she's probably one of the most likable actress. And I love Pitch Perfect, so I'm a little biased. But she was the new spokesperson for Kate Spade this year. And Kate Spade, they had, she had a viral video that happened this last fall, and I think it got seven or eight million views and definitely impacted their sales. And I think they actually mentioned that in their last quarterly earnings report. I had a conversation, I was tracking this video daily knowing that it would impact their sales. I had a conversation with a Kate Spade analyst, and I said, hey, we're just talking casually. Do you know who, have you been tracking this Anna Kendrick video? He, he said, who's Anna Kendrick? Ooh. He said, wait, wait, you cover Kate Spade as an analyst? She, she's the spokesperson for the brand. She has the biggest viral video of the year, and I didn't say this to him, you don't even know who she is? And, and the more you dig in, the more you understand how the traditional or conventional Wall Street analyst or even some really, you know, top hedge fund managers think, you realize how far behind the curve they are from just paying attention to social traction and social information. So there's a huge opportunity for everyone to arbitrage. Okay, so before we open up to the floor, um, let me just ask you a few uh, quick questions. You can just yeah, sure. reply quickly. Um, what's sort of the best advice you've received? And this could be in regards to life or investing. Yeah. Um, you know, I would say, you know, in, in terms of just investing in general, uh, someone told me early on, you know, you have, there's a direct correlation between risk and reward. No matter how smart you think you are, how much conviction you have, you have, at the end of the day, if you, if you want to, you know, receive reward for your investment, you have to be able to put risk assets at work. And, and unfortunately, most people, young and old, we just don't have a lot of risk assets. And that's a big thing to overcome, okay? And a lot of what I talk about in my book is, is how do we as, as, as younger people that we don't have a huge account to play around with and, and, and it doesn't get easier the older we get when you have kids and family and responsibilities how do we 
set aside risk assets to where when we come across an opportunity in life to do something great, whether it's invest in ourselves or invest in someone that we know who we believe in, if it's a startup venture, or if it's this, if it's investing in a publicly traded security where we've done some analysis and we believe there's a high-level conviction, are you really capable of putting thousands of dollars into that trade? And you won't do it unless you have partitioned off what I call risk-inverse account that every person should have. Wealthy people all have it, but we don't, right, as ordinary, ordinary people. You have to start there. So start with $10. Just put $10 right now in that account. And, and, and I don't care how you grow that account, whether it's, okay, I ordinarily wouldn't clip coupons, but I'm going to clip coupons, and every dollar I save, I'm putting into this account. And this account will only be used to take a big chance in life, to, to, to take a chance on myself or someone in my network or on a big levered options investment where I know there's a good probability I can lose it all. But in life, you will come to that crossroads. And if you don't have the ability to, to invest in, that in yourself or in that friend or in that colleague or in that security, you're going to potentially miss out on that opportunity. And I promise you, you will not pull the trigger on, a few of you will that, that, that are kind of risk tolerant, but most people by nature, if you kind of study this, were not risk tolerant. So you have to overcome the fact that you, most of us are not risk tolerant. So you must create this account and you must figure out a way to build it with capital that you're willing to take a huge chance with in life. And I can't, say it enough. It has to start, and it has to start right now, even if it's with $5, okay? And if you have to clip coupons to, to think, that, you know, listen, I know, I don't like clipping coupons, but I made 100 times my money in three and a half years. I turned 20000 to $2 million in three and a half years. It's since grown to eight. So if you think of a $2 coupon as $200, if you're successful investing in a startup or yourself or investment, all of a sudden, you might be one of those people that starts clipping coupons or doing something, right? And just very quickly, how, can you, how do you stay independent in your thinking and how do you manage your emotions? I don't. <laughs> I don't. Um, I, 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 I try. It's the hardest thing. I'll say this. I don't think you'll be successful doing what I do for ten, at least 10 years. I think it will take 10 years of doing this in a small way over and over again, developing a higher sense of conviction that you can do it. And even after 10 years, you're going to have extraordinary doubts. You're not going to believe that you're doing what you're doing. <laughs> um, I still, to this day, I'm finally getting to a point where I believe that what I do is repeatable, potentially forever. Um, but just know that it will take you probably a decade of, to believe in yourself, that you can actually do this. Because the global equities market and investment industry is so massive it's the brightest minds in the world, and you will always doubt yourself. Um, but you have to start, and it will take you a decade. So start small, and every time you have a big win, you're going to think it's because you got lucky. And I, I still think, I still doubt myself. You know, I've had 24 huge trades over eight years, and two of them have gone bad. 22 of them have gone very right. And that's what's enabled me to grow. Thank you for listening and see you next time.